Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible with you or if you have one in the seat in front of you, uh, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. It's always a joy for me to take a break from destroying my voice and singing on Sunday mornings and destroy it in preaching. Although I think usually my, my singing is louder than my preaching, but we'll see. Maybe that'll change today. Um, the title for today's message is All the Word for All of Life for Every Generation. All the Word for All of Life for Every Generation. So let's look at Deuteronomy. Let's read through these verses together. And see what God has to teach us this morning. These are the words of Moses to the people of Israel. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son. Sons, sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts to receive your word? What we do not have, we pray that you would give us. What we do not know, we pray that you would teach us, that you would create in us a desire to truly do all of your will. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we look around at the culture of our country today, we see it in rapid decline in, in many ways. And the word chaos about sums up how things are right now. And it's not just outside in the world around us and the culture around us, but we look at the state of church in America and we could see many things that are problematic and can look pretty grim so on the one hand, you have liberal Christianity, which has abandoned biblical theology and, and morality, choosing to follow the spirit of the age instead of the spirit-breathed word of God. And thankfully, that, that brand of Christianity, which is actually no Christianity at all, but an entirely different religion, is on the decline and has declined for some time. Their mem. Their members are hemorrhaging as faith, faithful Christians leave churches. So, liberal Christianity is on the decline as well it should be. Praise God, it's on the decline. Praise God that faithful churches and Christians are leaving those denominations and 
forming new ones and coming to other faithful Bible preaching churches. But on the other, on the other hand, we do have faithful churches across our country that are sadly also on the decline and churches that are shutting down pretty regularly across our country. And, but there are many faithful churches that are growing at the same time too. So it's not, it's not all on the decline in our country, but what is happening in America today is exactly what's, what's happened in Europe, in Europe, you know, through the past decades and centuries there as, as Christianity has been on the decline there and as secularism has been on the rise. We're saying that. So what you saw in England several decades ago is what's happening in America right now. What's happening in Canada right now, we're going to be facing here very shortly. So we need to prepare for that. But what, what is the cause of this decline in, in America? And, and sadly, the church is in large part the cause of this decline in, in our culture in America because we have failed to take heed to God's word. We have failed to pass on the, the faith and obedience to Christ to the next generation. Parents have been more concerned for several generations now with their children's academic success or their athletic success than their spiritual health. We've passively let our children be discipled at sec by secularists at their schools and hedonists in our entertainment. And, when, and we're surprised when our children become their faithful disciples instead of disciples of Christ. This has been going on for decades, and it's not surprising that we find ourselves in the state that we're in today. So how much the situation in, our, in, in, in America today and in the church today mirrors that of ancient Israel, and how often throughout their history they failed to pass on the faith to their children and to their children's children. One generation would be faithful, but the next generation would fall into idolatry and terrible immorality. One king would be faithful, but then his son would be unfaithful to the Lord. I just began to read Judges in, in my devotions. Not exactly a positive and encouraging book, as you know. Uh, but here, that, that pattern is repeated over and over. Judges 2, 7 through 11, gives the account of uh, the time after the death of Joshua, it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And it tells of Joshua's death, and it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. One generation served the Lord, but the next generation abandoned the Lord and turned to the gods of the Canaanites. Now in our passage today, it takes place before the time of Joshua, as Moses is nearing the end of his life, and he is giving what are effectively sermons to Israel as they are just to the east of the Jordan River, the walls of Jericho, just a few miles away, they're about to go in to take possession of the land of Canaan. And Moses warns them, as you do so, 
to take possession of Canaan. Do not yourself become Canaanites. Remain faithful to the Lord, both you and your children and your children's children. Remain faithful in your obedience to God. And obedience is the major theme of our passage today. And uh, I, I don't know if you have the outline on your handout there. We have the outline up on the screen here. There are three truths about obedience to God that we see in our passage today. First of all, the call to obedience. I made a change here after uh, I already gave Julie the slide. So just add a word, full obedience. The call to full obedience, because as we'll see, that's very clear here. So we see this call to obedience in verse one. Look at verse one. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them. Then to verse two. Moses speaks of keeping all his statutes and his commandments. In verse 3, he says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. And you find similar commandments all the way throughout Deuteronomy, and all of this shows that clearly that the commands of God are not optional for God's people. They stand at the heart of the Christian life and what God is accomplishing in his people by his saving work. But it's important for us to remember where these commands flow out of. God's commands were never the way by which his people were to save or to redeem themselves. Both in the Old and the New Testaments, God's way is to redeem a people for himself by his grace, and then he calls his people to a new way of life modeled after his holiness. We see this in chapter 5, just the preceding chapter where Moses gives again the Ten Commandments. And it's preceded by these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then, and only then, does he give the Ten Commandments. Redemption and then God's law and God's commands. God's redemption is always the glorious motivator of our obedience. We obey not to achieve salvation. We obey because we have freely received salvation. And as New Testament believers, we have received a far greater redemption than Israel did at the Red Sea, right? Okay, their, their redemption was an amazing work of God. And their story is, is our story, but that was only a shadow. That was only a, a picture and a pointing forward to the greater redemption that Christ would accomplish for us through his death and his resurrection. So Israel's salvation was glorious, but our salvation through Christ is far more glorious. So our good works are the grateful response of our undeserved redemption accomplished for us by Christ. Now, notice the extent to which Israel is called to obey God. He calls them not to a partial obedience, but a full obedience. Look again in verse 2. Moses calls Israel to keep all of his statutes and commandments. It's not an option for us to pick and choose which commands of God we want to follow and those we don't. That makes us a God to ourselves. We come up with our own self-designed law in order to fit our own desires. 
Christians, uh, have you ever received this charge? Christians are often given the charge, you all just pick and choose which laws you're going to, to follow from the Bible. So don't eat, don't eat shellfish. Do you eat shellfish? You ever heard that one before? Okay, that's like the most common one. Okay. All right, so of course that charge has a complete lack of understanding that Jesus himself declared all foods clean and the New Testament does away with the dietary laws of the Old Testament. But does the charge still stand? Do you pick and choose which laws you're going to follow? All right, yes, I won't swear. There will never be a swear word that comes out of my mouth, but I will gossip. And I'm not going to stop gossiping. Yes, I will provide for my family financially. I'll work the long hours and the hard days to provide for my family, as God tells me to. But I'm also going to tear down my family with my words. Yes, I'll come to church every Sunday. But I'm not going to worship God during the week. I'm not going to read his word. I'm not going to pray to God during the week. Yes, I'll read my theology books. But no, I won't pray. Yes, I love my family, but no, I won't be bothered to care for the needs of my neighbors. Sadly, the charge stands in some way or another for all of us that, that we, don't, we don't fully give ourselves to all the commands of God. We, we all have remaining areas of sin in our life that are not yet submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Christian, you are not Lord over your own life. Christ is. You were bought with a price, the very blood of Christ. Therefore, you do not belong to yourself. No part of your life belongs to you anymore. Let go of the grip that you have over your life or the parts of your life that you're not ready to give up yet and let Christ take full control. So God calls his people to this full obedience to his commands, but on our own, we are unable to do this ourselves. Without the work of God, without his salvation, without the indwelling Holy Spirit that he gives us, none of us desire to obey the law of God. None of us love the law of God as we should. But Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, tells of the heart change that God brings through the gospel to Enable us to a life of full obedience to him. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, which I, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you've been saved by faith in Christ, God has done a miracle in your heart. He has taken that old heart that you had that loved your sin and hated God and he has created in you a heart that now longs to obey God. Christian, praise God for the miracle that you now want to obey God. Praise God that he's moving in you to love his word, to desire holiness, to be grieved by your sin and to make real progress in holiness. 
Praise God that his spirit enables us to a life of obedience to God. So it's the gospel that creates this in us. It's, the, it's God through the gospel and the spirit that creates this transformed heart. And then Moses then goes on to tell us more of what this transformed heart looks like. And our second main point, the heart of obedience. There are two essential parts of a transformed heart that we see in, in these verses. A heart that fears God, first of all, and then a heart that loves God. So a heart that fears God, we see this in verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his commandments, all his statutes and his commandments. So Moses calls on Israel to fear, to the fear of God that evidences itself in obedience to God all throughout Scripture. Many, many times, God's people are called to fear God. So the fear of God is not marginal, but central to the life of God's people. It's a sad absence in modern evangelical Christianity today that we don't speak often or at all about the fear of God. We talk a lot about the love of God, our love for God, but the fear of God makes, makes some of us uncomfortable. We want to feel warm fuzzies about God. And we're not sure how fearing God fits in with those warm fuzzies. You know, if warm, happy, nice feelings of God are the singular way in which you relate to him, you have a deficient view of God. Too many modern evangelicals have a flippant or casual attitude toward their relationship with God. God is their best friend, not a sovereign king. He's a warm blanket, not a consuming fire. If all you're after is cuddles from heaven on Sunday morning or on your personal devotions, you're failing to see God rightly. When people see God in Scripture... What happens? Uh, they usually fall down. <laughs> uh, they usually fall down as dead. They, they, they are completely overwhelmed by him in his holiness. Church, if, if we truly understood the full glory of God, his majesty, his utter holiness, we would respond in quite the same way. Scripture speaks of kneeling before God. Do you ever kneel before God? Scripture speaks of falling down on your face before God. Do you ever fall down on your face before God? Scripture speaks of being silent in his presence. Are you ever silent in his presence? If we're given eyes to see who God truly is in his holiness, we will rightly fear him. But it's vital for us to, uh, to us for us to understand the biblical idea of fearing God, because we could get that wrong too. If we misunderstand the fear of God, we will misunderstand God. So Christians are not to live with a terror of God, to go around on their tippy toes, you know, you know, fearing to mess up or to sin at all because God's immediately going to strike them. Always fearing God's judgment. That's not the kind of fear of God that we're talking about here. 
God's judgment has been spent on Christ. Christian, you don't have to fear his judgment. You don't have to fear his eternal wrath. But even though that is gloriously true, there must always remain for us a trembling before God. No more terror, but we must always continue to have a trembling before God. Isaiah 62, 66.2 says, God says this, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. May that kind of fear of God show itself in our holy reverence toward him and toward his word. But as you read through scripture and in our passage here, you find out that God is not just a God who's worthy of our fear and trembling, but he's a God who is supremely worthy of our love and our affections. A heart of love is what God is after, in addition to a heart of fear. So in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that Moses' command in Deuteronomy 6.5 here is the greatest command. All right, when Jesus says something is the greatest command, it is the greatest command. And so you need to lean in on this because if you understand this, we, you will understand the very foundation of a life of obedience that's pleasing to God. But before Moses gives this command, he introduces it with the very truth that stands underneath this command. Look in verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the truth that undergirds this command. So there were many gods worshiped by the Canaanites that were surrounding Israel, but the Lord, the Lord alone was the one living God. Isaiah 43.10 says, Before me, no God was formed, and nor shall there be any after me. The Lord, the Lord alone is God. And this one God has, had chosen Israel to be his people. Therefore, they were to worship no other God. Their allegiance was to him alone. There is not room in our hearts for two gods. One will displace the other. You cannot divide your allegiance between God and some other God, some other idol, some other allegiance. God will not let you have half of him and he will not be content with half of you. God is everything and he deserves everything from us. Which is what Moses says next in verse five when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I love how one commentator puts it. From the oneness of God flows a oneness of love. And God calls us here to love him with the entirety of our being, heart, soul, and might. So in Hebrew, the idea of heart is not exactly how we use heart today. Um, it was considered the seat of the mind, of the will, not just the emotions. So when Jesus quotes this verse in the New Testament, he includes the word mind, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not Jesus adding to it. It's him explaining the, the full meaning behind it. So God wants us to use our intellectual abilities to love him. He wants us to first use our minds in pursuit of him, 
through knowing him through his word and knowing his truth, knowing his commands and, and following him faithfully in the use of our minds and his truth, but also to use our minds in the pursuit of all his truth in, in all of life and every possible subject. God has given us all certainly different capacities of intellect and he's sovereign and good in that. But with whatever intellectual abilities God has given you, he calls you to use all of them to love him and to know him, to love him with all of your mind. Next, God commands us to love him with all of our soul. Soul is not here referring to the invisible part of us as opposed to the, our bodies, but it, it's referring to the, the very person themselves, their very being. We're to love God with all our being. And lastly, we are to love God with all our might or strength. That's our energy. Our abilities are to be given to loving God. All of this together means we're to love God with our whole being. We're to live a life of entire devotion to God from head to toe, inside and out. A love for God should affect everything that we do. There's not one part of your life that's not touched by God in his word and his truth. Christian, God has redeemed you entirely, heart, soul, and might. And he calls you to use all of these for his glory and in obedience to his word. And, and here I just want to make a few points of application to us of what God calls us to in, a, in having a heart of obedience. I want to urge, or we may find ourselves in different places in, in response to and in view of this command here. But first of all, do not wait to pursue. Do not wait to pursue a heart of obedience to God. In verse 2, we're told to fear the Lord your God, you and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. I know for me, I wasted. I, I came to know Christ when I was five years old, and I... I did not really pursue Christ much until college. So my elementary school years, my middle school years, my high school years, yes, there was growth and I see God work. I saw God working, but I was not pursuing him with my whole heart during those times. And, and kids, students, I want to urge you, do not waste your years right now that God has given you? How much fruit would have come from my life in those years if I would have faithfully pursued Christ? Don't wait to pursue God with a heart of full obedience. But for some of us, some of you, you have given years and decades to this wholehearted pursuit of God and, and you've grown in godliness and, and you've faithfully served God, but Please never, never fall into, into the temptation that, well, you've put in your time. It's time for me to relax. It's time for me to, I could kind of coast. I've got a lot of knowledge of God. I, got, I know his word. I, I've done a lot for him. And, and these next years or decades that I have, I'm just going to kind of live off the fumes of that. Christian, you have so much 
left that you can grow in and in the time that God has given you. Like the standard is perfection. God says, be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. So you've got room to grow, all right? So uh, none of us are there. None of us will be there. John says, if you, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. You're lying to yourself. So we all have room to grow. I, 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 love, I love Charles Spurgeon's stories because um, Spurgeon is awesome. Um, funny guy. Um, but so Spurgeon was um, preaching at a conference along with, and Spurgeon was just a great preacher of God from the 1800s, and he was a speaker at a conference along with another man who publicly proclaimed that Christians could reach a place of sinless perfection where they no longer sin because they were perfected in the love of God. And that speaker went on to suggest modestly that he had realized that in his own life. I wonder if this guy had kids uh, or a wife to verify that. Um, Probably not. (laughs) If you have kids, you have not arrived. All right. All right. They will bring out your sin. All right. Spurgeon said nothing, listened quietly to the sermon, but the next morning at breakfast time, he crept up behind the man, poured a jug of milk on his head, and discovered that the man still had a sinful nature. So, yeah. So find, find your, your holiness or perfectionist Christian uh, friend and, and do the same and see if they're perfect, if they claim to be perfect. All right. We all have room to grow. Use the years and decades that you have left and before you to pursue God even more faithfully and even more with all of your heart. But as we see in our final verses, six through nine, faithful obedience is just, is not a matter of my life only, but for the generations coming from me and the generations coming after me. Biblical holiness is something we pursue not just for ourselves, but for our homes, for our churches, our kids, our grandkids, and great-grandkids. God calls his people to pursue not only individual obedience, but also intergenerational obedience. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 again says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Moses here speaks directly to the moms and dads in this sermon to Israel. He's talking to the moms and dads in that crowd. He tells them the vital importance of faithfully passing down the faith to their kids. And he doesn't just leave them with a general command, but he tells them how they are to do that. First, verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your kids. And that phrase, ESV translates it, helpfully, teach them diligently, but the word behind that in Hebrew actually means repeat it over and over again. And it can also carry with it the idea of engraving, 
So the idea is to teach these truths and these commands to your kids over and over and over and over again until they are engraved on their hearts and on their minds. So me and Jess have had to learn this with our kids. Uh, <laughs> repetition, especially our son. Um, Sore and smile and those little dimples will melt your heart. Uh, but his hard head will drive you mad. Okay, <laughs> Ask my wife. She, she spends all those hours with him every day, and she knows this. And we, it, it was frustrating, especially, you know, during the terrible twos. All right? Um, we used to tell him the same things over and over again with all the attending spankings and, and to no avail, no, no changes, just doing the same things over and over again. But we stuck with the dozens and hundreds of repetitions of God's commandments and rules and those things that used to be daily and hourly disobedience are now becoming few and far between. Now, there's the new set of disobediences that we're working with right now, currently, but uh, we'll work on those too. Um, but the repetition is slowly but surely engraving and impressing those truths on his heart. So moms and dads, don't tire of repeating the same old truths over and over again because they're not just old truths. They are the ever-present, ever-powerful Word of God, and you pray that God will use them to transform your kids' hearts. And let me just say here, this is not just teaching our kids the commands of God, apart from the gospel of God. If all we give our kids is the law, they will be crushed by the law. They have to hear the gospel, the good news that God forgives your many, many sins, just like he gives, forgives mommy and daddy's many, many sins sins. And that it's the gospel that strengthens our kids and gives them the desire to want to obey this God who loves and forgives them so deeply. So we have to repeat these commands over and over, repeat these truths over and over again. And let me just put a plug here for Bible memorization for our kids. Our little ones are sponges. All right, finding that out. Um, like our oldest is five. So we're in that stage right now. So many of you are long past this time, but um, they, they're sponges. They, they repeat everything, good and bad. All right, so daddy needs to always watch out what he says because the kids will repeat it. All right, use that, that nature of your kids being sponges for the glory of God. Just feed them the word like you feed them candy. And, and, and feed them candy as they learn the word. Like do, like help them to give them some incentives. It's not bad. We give our kids these awesome 50-cent coins, you know, whenever they learn their Bible verse. And, and they're doing great. Like I, we did one day of practicing a Bible verse this last week, and Blair the next day just says the whole thing verbatim. It wasn't this tiny verse. It was a longer verse. Like, what in the world, child? Like, <laughs> you're smarter than your dad already. All right. Okay, so this is, this is how they are. Um, so 
whether that is helping your kids memorize the Bible verses that they're learning in their classes at church, or maybe you're going through uh, a set of Bible verses together systematically. So that fighter verse app, if you, if you don't have that, parents, like there's a section in there for uh, foundation verses, which are just, uh, some of them are just portions of verses, but these like for ages three to five to, to get these, these truths in your kids' hearts. And they also have um, verses in there for K through sixth grade too. So depending on the age, you could do longer and, and longer verses there. So that's a great app, and those are great programs of memory for our kids. So you use that, that hunger for knowledge and, and your kids being sponges for them to learn the Word of God. But it's more than just repetition. It's also daily conversation. Moses tells parents that God's commands should be a part of their ordinary daily conversation. He's, he says in verse 7, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So there's two pairs of opposites there, sitting down and walking, lying down and rising up. It's suggesting that God's word should be a part of every time, every place, every activity. There's no part of our day that is not touched upon by God's word. God's word and God's wisdom connect to all of life, every single conceivable activity, and we need to teach our kids how it does that. How the word of God, how Christ, how the gospel applies to everything. Verses eight through nine give, I think, an application symbolically um, of teaching our kids how the word of God applies to all of life. It talks about binding God's words to your hands, on your forehead, writing it on your door, or on your city gates there. Some Jews, many Jews, followed that literally and actually wore uh, Bible verses on their wrists or on their forehead, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But I think that the point there is you're showing your kids how the Word of God applies to what you do with your hands, what you do with your eyes, what we do in our home, what we do in our community, and in, in our city. The Word of God applies to all of it, and, and it's the responsibility and privilege of parents to teach your kids how it does that. So, for instance, when, when you're walking through the woods, if you like to do that as a family, enjoying nature, point out the wisdom of God and the little creatures that you're seeing and the little bugs that you're seeing and the, the, the variety of trees that God has created. Point out his wisdom and his creativity. Uh, when you're watching a nature documentary on TV and they, they bring in the inevitable evolution bit, okay, which they will do. They always do it. Um, uh, first response is always a good belly laugh because um, it's hilarious um, if you think about it. Um, but take the time. It doesn't need to be every time. Don't push pause every time they say it. All right. Um, uh, but take time to teach your kids biblical creation and how Darwin, Darwinian evolution is really unscientific and illogical and nobody really wants to live like that, as if it's true. Like, nobody wants to live as if this world is a, and universe is a cosmic accident. Nobody, li nobody lives like that. We live as if love is more than a chemical reaction. Although their worldview would say it's not. That's, all, that's really all that it is. We live as if life really does have meaning. Although their worldview would say it doesn't. It can't have meaning. It's an accident. 
We, we live as if there are real moral standards that people must follow, but evolution could give no accounting for that. And teach your kids these things. Don't just let them absorb these things from TV or from the classroom without equipping them with God's word. Maybe when you're watching a Disney movie and the Disney gospel of follow your heart comes up. All right. That's not good news. That's bad news. All right, and teach your kids why that's bad news. And usually you just have to point out, here's what happens when the princesses do that, when they follow their heart. Disaster. All right, okay, disaster. All right, when, maybe when you're helping your kids with their geometry at homework, if you can do that, if you have that skill. All right, that's going to be my wife, not me. Um, and, they're, and they're like, when am I ever going to use this in life? Well, you may not have a career where you need geometry. Um, I'm glad I don't. Um, But you're learning about the wisdom of God in his creation. You're learning about his logic, his order, his design. That's why you're learning these things. Even if you're never going to use it, it's amazing to see the mind of God and his wisdom in creation. So we could go on and on with examples, but the point is that the Word of God has something to say about everything, and it's the responsibility and privilege of parents to teach our kids how it does, how it relates to everything. And, and I, wanna, I, I just want to pause and challenge our parents with something. Christian parents, you are responsible for giving your kids a Christian education for teaching them how the word of God applies to all of life and to every subject. And I know we've got families with kids in in homeschool, uh, uh, Christian school, public school. Nobody's off the hook. We all have this responsibility to give our kids a Christian education. If you homeschool your kids, show your kids how Christ and his word apply to all the subjects that you're teaching. Don't just have a, a Bible class And that's all that Jesus and God gets mentioned. The word of God needs to be part of every subject. If your kids are going to Christian school, that's a great way for your kids to see how Christ relates to everything. But don't let this be a cause for you to be passive in the discipleship of your kids, in the training of your kids in the faith. Be asking your kids about what they're learning in their classes and be be discerning and, and be going to the word. Does the word of God actually teach this and look at the scriptures together. Don't leave to the Christian school what is first and foremost your responsibility. And if your kids are going to public school, parents, you have every reason to be deeply and intensely engaged in making sure your kids are grounded in a Christian worldview and morality. Because more often than not, they're not going to be they're not going to be taught this in school. Often very much the opposite. What you're trying to instill in the home, the opposite is often going to be happening in the school. So if your kids are going to public school, you have to be engaged deeply with them. Do not be passive. Don't just think it's the easy way to pass up our kids to get a, just a general neutral education No, they're going to be taught things at school that are completely opposed to Christ and his word. And you, parents, you are responsible for making sure your kids don't fall into those lies. 
You must teach them. You must train them. That is your responsibility and privilege. So all of us, we are called to give our Christians, uh, give our kids a Christian education and equip them and grow them in the faith. Last few points before we finish our message. A few points of application. Parents, make sure the word of God is part of your daily conversation as a family. I heard it put this way. Christianity ought to be as normal in your home as dirty laundry and cornflakes. So, or Cheerios in our, in our, in our state. So it's everywhere, right? Socks everywhere, dirty laundry everywhere, cornflakes everywhere. It, sh- it just, it should be that ordinary and normal for God and the gospel and Christ to be part of your conversation as a family. And I wanna encourage our, our families to make family devotions a joyful habit in your home. And many of us, I'm sure, didn't grow up with, this, with that as a, as, in, in our families, and so we're kind of ill-equipped at, at how we can do something like that, but it doesn't need to be complicated. Donald Whitney has a really helpful little book called Family Worship, and there's just three parts to family worship that he gives. Read, pray, and sing. All right, don't freak out with that last one. Okay, Uh, read, pray, and sing. Read the Bible. Read a good devotional book together. Read a Bible story book. It doesn't have to get complicated. Read the chapter, read the section. Sometimes you'll have longer conversations. Sometimes just make a few points of application. It doesn't need to be complicated. Pray. Pray Pray about what you've just learned. Take prayer requests. Maybe you have on certain days of the week you're praying for, for different things as a family, and then sing. Sing a song together. So what we do after our family devotions, not every day of the week, is daddy pulls out his hymnal and we sing a hymn, often one that we're gonna sing on Sunday morning and we just teach our kids a cappella. I don't even pull out my guitar. It's just a cappella and it sounds terrible. All right? (laughs) And it probably will in your home too. All right, it's fine. As you guys probably remember from our Christmas program, our daughter does not really sing on key yet, but I love it. I love it. She sings out loud, and it's, and it's so fun. So, um, so just sing, and it sounds terribly, that's fine. But if, if at the end of the day that just terrifies you and that alone will keep you from doing family devotions, then, you know, um, just do the first two, and that'll be good. Read the Word and pray together as a family. And God will use that to the spiritual health of your home. And, and I don't want to hold out a particular way of teaching the Bible to your kids as law, okay? Because all these things are not spelled out in Scripture. But if you're not going to do it in that way, find out how you're going to do it and do it. It's going to be imperfect, uh, but just do it uh, for the salvation of your kids and the sanctification of your kids. And dads, This is first and foremost your responsibility, not mom's responsibility. Paul gives dads the command in Ephesians 5, fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't put that pressure on your wife to take the lead on that. But because of the situation, she may have more time to spend with the kids and teaching them the word, but ultimately that's your responsibility to train your kids up 
in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So don't pass that on to your wife. Don't pass that on to the church. Take that upon yourself. And all of us as a church have a role in this, in intergenerational obedience. Not all of us have kids, but God has given us a ton of amazing, wonderful kids in our church. That's like our new church growth program. It's just have lots of kids. And uh, so keep it up. Keep it up. And uh, it's getting crazy out there. All right. So, (laughs) but some of you, God has called or will call you to children's ministry and you can help our kids toward faithful obedience through teaching and helping in those classes. That is a wonderful way to apply this passage to the kids in our church. But even if that's not you, we can all pray for our kids and should pray for the kids in our church. When you're praying through the directory, or through your Realm app. Don't just pray for mom and dad. Pray for the kids. Pray for the teenagers. Pray that God would help them to to know Christ and to follow Christ faithfully. So every one of us have the responsibility to pursue faithful obedience, not just for ourselves, but for the generations to come. And our goal is to train and equip the generation to be even more faithful than we are. And for them to train the next generation to be even more faithful still until Christ returns to a church that is mature and ready and prepared for him. So church, may today be the day that each of us give ourselves entirely to Christ afresh. If you've never turned to Christ in faith and repentance, receiving his forgiveness of sins and eternal life, And following his call to obey, you can do that today. If you will call on him to save you, he will. And he will transform you and give you the grace to faithfully follow him. For those of us who that is true of, may God give us the grace to be even more so. For us and for the next generations and for a thousand generations to come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great redemption that you've accomplished for us through Christ. We thank you that you've called us out of our sin. We were slaves to our sin. We were slaves to death. We were slaves to Satan, but you have redeemed us. And we are now your called out and beloved people. God, give us hearts that fear you as you deserve. Give us hearts that love you as you deserve. Equip our families and our church to faithfully follow you and to train our kids and our great-grandkids and our great-great-grandkids to do the same. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.